Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive & June. Olive & June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. I'm Jeremy Cliff, International Editor of the New Statesman in Berlin. I'm Emily Tampkin, U.S. Editor in Washington, D.C. I'm Ida Volk, Europe Correspondent in Berlin. It's Thursday, the 16th of December. You're listening to World Review from the New Statesman, a twice-weekly international news podcast. Every Thursday, we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs, and every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise. This week, we look at the buildup of Russian troops on the Ukrainian border. We're deeply concerned by evidence that Russia has made plans for significant aggressive moves against Ukraine. The plans include efforts to destabilize Ukraine from within, as well as large-scale military operations. What does Russia want? And what can and should the wider world do? Chile's presidential election heads to a runoff. In a divided political landscape, current president Sebastián Piñera asked the two remaining candidates to always seek the paths of peace and not of violence, the paths of unity and not of division. What would each candidate's victory mean for the country? Thank you for joining us. Let's begin. Jeremy, Ito, we are back at the top of the show there. We heard U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken express continued concern about Russia's behavior regarding Ukraine. We've been talking about this for weeks. The world has been watching it for weeks. Ito, can you get us up to date on the latest between Russia and Ukraine? Yeah, so Russia has recently been building up its troops on its border with Ukraine. There are probably about 100,000 troops. Um, some U.S. estimates say that they might be as many as 170,000 on the border with Ukraine. And crucially also, there's also a lot of the sort of infrastructure that potentially would be required if Russia were to decide to invade Ukraine. So, you know, the sort of supply lines and the the stuff that underpins an invasion that's not just the combat troops, but also the parts of, of the army, which are a bit less sort of sexy, but definitely essential to an invasion. And so that has the West and Ukraine very worried. Um, and they, they apparently think that this is a lot more credible than a previous troop buildup that had happened in April. And so there are fears that 
Russia may be preparing an invasion as early as January, so next month. Something that Megan and I were speaking about last week on the podcast was this idea that Ukraine will always matter more to Russia than it will to the United States or to the to the wider world. And so what the US and the so-called West can do about it is is limited. Do you think that's fair or is that a, a cop-out that we tell ourselves to justify not doing more in defense of Ukraine? I mean, I, I think it, it's sort of self-evident that a country which is on Russia's border, which 30 years ago was in the same country as Russia and which was part of Russia's kind of broad sphere of influence for hundreds of years before that, that that would matter more to Russia than it does to the US, which is thousands of miles away and you know has a sort of, I suppose, strategic interest in Ukraine, but not a kind of, not that that closeness, both uh, both geographically and also politically, historically, culturally, uh, in religious terms and so on, language terms. Um, so I think I think there's there's something to that, but but that's I suppose fairly abstract. And the the more relevant point is how willing is Russia to take action versus how willing are the US and European countries to take action. And I think it's pretty obvious that if you look at the balance of probabilities, Russia is much more willing to take action, in fact, has taken action against Ukraine, um, did in 2014, uh, than, than the US and Europe. I mean, I think we really have to be realistic here. No one in London or Washington or Paris or Berlin is going to send troops to die for Ukraine. No one. Um, whereas, right. you know, in, in Moscow, they're very willing to send troops, even if they deny their, their Russian troops, but they're very willing to send troops to, well, well, not many of them died for Crimea, but some Russians did die uh, for, for the Donbass. I just want to clarify that by action, we mean military action. Obviously, the United States, the UK, European countries have sanctioned Russia and have sent military aid, but we're speaking about sending troops, sending men and women. I wanted to ask Ido, because he was in um, uh, Ukraine earlier this year, Ido, you were in um, uh, Lviv and, and Odessa, and you met with a number of kind of prominent uh, Ukrainian politicians and cultural figures. What was your sense back then, this was back in the summer, wasn't it, of how ready Ukraine felt for a new um, onslaught by Russia? Because because already then there were, there were the first signs that Putin was uh, was preparing another troop buildup. What, what was the mood then? And what does that tell you about how prepared Ukraine might be now? Well, the, the consensus in Ukraine is that they're much more prepared now than they were in 2014. In 2014, um, the army wasn't, I mean, I'm not a military expert, but from what I've heard from military experts and from people I've spoken to is that there wasn't really a Ukrainian army. It was kind of different battalions that had to be brought in kind of ad hoc. They didn't really have uniforms. I mean, there, there are stories of Ukrainians sort of traveling to Germany and buying up uniforms in army surplus stores to send to the front lines in Donbass. Like, that was the state of the Ukrainian military. And that's completely changed um, since 2014. The army is much stronger, much better organized, much larger. And I mean, they, they weren't kind of psychologically prepared for an invasion from Russia in 2014. And obviously, that that's completely different now, too. So I think there's a sense that uh, Ukraine could put up a pretty tough fight for Russia, but there's, there are no illusions whatsoever that if Russia really wanted to invade and really wanted to defeat Ukraine militarily, it could. There, there's no question about that. Um, and so the the 
kind of real pointers is the is the action that Ukraine and the Western countries are willing to take or can take, is that going to be enough to deter Russia if it really decided that it did want to go for an invasion? Which, by the way, is not at all clear at this point. Um, there's a kind of broad consensus that although it seems like Russia is building up uh, troops that could potentially go for an invasion, it's not necessarily absolutely a given that they've taken that decision and that they they know they want to. And there are, there are differing opinions on this. I've spoken to people who think it's 50-50. I've spoken to people who think it's uh, not likely at all. So, but, y- you know, we shouldn't talk about this as though it's sort of preordained. It might happen, but also it might not. One of the things that strikes me most reading about this is how little of a rational case Putin has for invading Ukraine, in that even with the superior might of the, the Russian armed forces, it would be a, a sort of a long and intractable battle. You know, it, it could even become a sort of Russian Vietnam. And there's not even any great pressure for it from the Russian population. It's not like it would resolve his voters' clamour for better social welfare or better living standards. And, and you know, the more you read about it, the more it seems to come back to Putin's um, distinctive personal psychology and um, pathologies, you know, his 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 deep fascination with Russia's place in world history and his vision of world order. And, you know, the more you read about this, some of it is almost quasi-mystical, his view about how, how, how nations rise and fall, what role Russia is ordained to play in, in global history. And, I mean, in some ways, that's the alarming side of it, that so much of it comes in, in a system that is so centralised and has become more centralised and brittle under Putin over the last years, as we've discussed in this podcast before, how much of it comes down to his own psychology, frankly, and his own whims and his own his own view of his place in history. Yeah, completely. Um, and the, the danger for the Kremlin is <laughs> sometimes it seems like they've gotten high off their own supply. Like I spoke to Mark Galliotti, who's a Russian security defence expert, and he says, you know, one of the dangers is perhaps that Russia really does think that NATO is the US's Warsaw Pact and that whatever the US says goes in NATO. But of course, that's not true. And so Putin is making all these demands of NATO um, and saying we need guarantees about no further westward expansion and um, Georgia and Ukraine need to be, their, their promises of eventual membership need to be rescinded and so on. Um almost as if kind of the US was the only one making those decisions, whereas of course they're not. And if the US were to say that, some NATO member states would be pretty happy because they don't really want the sort of antagonism of uh, of Ukraine and Georgia joining, but others would be much more hostile countries like Poland, like uh, the Baltic states would be very hostile to the the US, for example, uh, saying that, that, yeah, there's no chance that Ukraine will ever join. And that, and so, so, yeah, it does kind of come back to that... Uh, that sense of Putin personally, his own personal um, ideas and, and beliefs. And we know that he has an obsession with Ukraine, which is actually not that widely shared in the Kremlin and, and in Russia, but he, he is completely obsessed with Ukraine. I mean, he wrote this 5,000 word article this summer about how Ukraine basically isn't a real country and Ukrainians are Russians and Russians are one people and, and so on. Um, he has this kind of obsession with Ukraine in particular. And and that brings us back to the point about getting high on their own supply, because if you really don't think Ukraine is a real country, if you really think it is just a decadent NATO puppet, then the case for, for invading looks more rational than, than if you actually look at it as it is, which is that Ukraine is an independent country and, and, and one with a, a will to defend itself. And also, the material conditions for an invasion in Ukraine are way different now than they, than they were in 2014. So in 2014, you had... 
a big chunk of the Ukrainian population which did did not want to live in Ukraine. They wanted to live in Russia. Um, and also there was this territory, Crimea, which holds a very sort of important place in the Russian psyche and um, uh, was very important kind of culturally and politically to, to Russia. And you could have Russian troops march in and basically be welcomed as liberators by a big chunk of the population, not the whole population, but a lot of the population. And similarly, I mean, the war in eastern Ukraine became basically a war between Ukraine and Russia, but it didn't start as a war between Ukraine and Russia. It started as a as an uprising by pro-Russian militias who wanted their territories to, to be annexed to Russia, who wanted to live in Russia. All that doesn't exist anymore. There aren't that many parts of Ukraine, and there's certainly no kind of extended territory in Ukraine, extended area where Russians could sort of walk in without firing shots like they did in 2014 in Crimea and just annex it and everyone... I mean, you know, Crimea is basically peaceful. Um, there's some opposition from Crimean Tatars, but like basically seven years later, it's just another province of Russia. Um, and that those conditions simply don't exist elsewhere in Ukraine now. One other element of this that I did want to mention before we moved on is Nord Stream 2, which is the pipeline that, that's, that's set to go from Russia to Germany. It has been very controversial for years. The United States has been trying to get Germany to end this project. Germany has said basically said no, and then no, we won't do that. And then finally said, oh, now it's almost finished. Um, it has given headaches for the Biden administration because there are Republican senators who are holding up nominees, they say, unless Biden puts on sanctions over Nord Stream 2. Jeremy, there's this new German government. Are they going to change position on Nord Stream 2 given this new development between Russia and Ukraine? Or are we are we still stuck with the pipeline? I fear that we're still stuck with the pipeline. Obviously, um, the new foreign minister, Annalena Baerbock of the Greens, has um, spoken out in the past against Nord Stream 2, set against that Chancellor Olaf Scholz and his Social Democrats are in favour. There has been talk about um, Germany threatening to terminate work or, or pause work on, on Nord Stream 2 if Russia goes into Ukraine. Um, but it's striking that what is effectively being threatened is a pause and not a termination of the project. And so I think you might see work stall. There might be a big debate about the role of Nord Stream 2. But at the end of the day, it's about 95% complete. Um, and it is also spoken of as, as possibly a, a vessel in the future for hydrogen as well as um, gas, which um, you know would, would speak to Germany's need to decarbonize. So I imagine it possibly being stalled, but I don't see it being ended because it's just too late in the day. Well, we will continue to follow both that story and the wider Russia-Ukraine story on World Review and in our writing at The New Statesman. With that, we go across the world to a country that I don't think we've spoken about before on this podcast, Chile. Jeremy, how do things stand as the, as the country heads into the runoff stage of its presidential election? That's right. Chile went to the first stage of that presidential election on the 21st of November. Um, now we're coming up to the runoff, which will be this Sunday as we record this, so on the 19th of December. And it's a runoff that's been characterised as between two hardliners or even extremists. On the right, José Antonio Cast, who is a, um, a hardline conservative who um, is very transparently nostalgic for the years of the Pinochet dictatorship and stands in opposition to a lot of the sort of uh, social progress in Chile in recent years. Um, in some ways, you know, he's in the mold of a Donald Trump or, or, or closer to home, uh, Jair Bolsonaro you know, from Brazil. On the left, you have Gabriel Boric, who is a young former student activist on the left, 
um, who came to prominence in the uh, protests in Chile in 2011. And it's being characterized, as I said, as this as this battle between two extremes. But I think I think that oversimplifies it to some extent. And to understand the choice, you have to understand and, and, and indeed why these are the two figures in the runoff and why the why the center right and the center left dropped out in the first round last month. You have to understand the, the, the longer term history. And I think it's important to know that the Pinochet di- dictatorship ended in 1990 not with a an overthrow, but with as part of a process of gradual movement towards democracy. Chile still has the constitution that was brought in under Pinochet and its economic settlement, which is very much small state, light touch regulation, some would say neoliberal, if that's a word you like to use, that is still with a basic uh, settlement that the countries are operated under. And it, it sort of it progressed gradually to democracy and was seen in the 1990s, 2000s as quite a success story in Latin America by, by some way one of the most prosperous countries in Latin America with quite a stable um, exchange of power between the centre-right and the centre-left, um, certainly high levels of human development than almost all of its neighbours, and indeed indeed all of its neighbours. But under the surface, you had um, still deep inequalities, a very weak social safety net for a country, you know, almost as prosperous as some of the poorer European countries, and a sort of unresolved legacy from the Pinochet years. And that's all exploded in, in the recent years, particularly from 2019, when um, protests took to the streets of uh, Chilean cities over living standards and living costs. Uh, at, at the peak of that, there were one million people on the streets of Santiago. And that has seen a kind of recasting of Chilean politics along along the along the lines of the protests and who's against it and who's for it. And uh, last uh, earlier this year, there was a, a vote to a constitutional convention, which is a response to these protests um, brought through by Piñera, the, the outgoing centre-right uh, president, which is meant to design a new constitution to replace the, the, the Pinochet era one. And and the votes, the vote to that con- convention saw the left do very well and independents do, also political outsiders do very well. And so we're now you know, at the end of the year. In the aftermath of that vote, and 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 with the constitutional convention, you know, um, des- designing a new constitution for Chile, you have this contest between those who who want to uphold parts of that old post Pinochet, or indeed in some cases, you know, Pinochet era status quo, and caste is the representative of those, and those who are on the side of the protesters, and Boric is, you know, a kind of the epitome of that of that side of the country, and so it's it's a story of polarization as Chile gra- grapples with the unresolved business of 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 the dictatorship and the economic model that that came into force under it. Would you say that people who are who who look at this and say, oh, this is part of this global rise of populism, that they're completely wrong, or is it that it is part of that, but it's but that there are specifics about the Chilean context that have let the wave come to shore in Chile? I think it's a bit of both. I think I think a, a lot of it is very specific to Chile for the mm. for the historical reasons that I've, I've just discussed. Um, I think if you're going to generalize it, I would probably do so more at, a le- at, at the level of Latin America rather than mm-hmm. the world in general. Because, and, and one should be careful about, about generalizing about Latin America as well, because 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 often it all gets wrapped up as one phenomenon, and that's that's not correct. But there are certain kind of ebbs and flows in the history of of that region of the world that are common to a number of countries. So you saw, for example, in the in the sort of 2000s the so-called pink wave, so a general tilt towards the left, in some countries more towards the centre-left, so in Chile, uh, Ricardo Lagos and then Michel Bachelet, uh, who were both social democratic presidents, essentially, um, 
uh, you know, in Brazil you had Lula, and then you had the more hardline left of you know Hugo Chavez in Venezuela. But but the two thousands were also across a lot of Latin America a period of prosperity because you had a commodities boom. China was was importing a lot of raw materials from from Latin America, and and, and across the region you saw reductions in poverty and, and, and you know a growing middle class. And the story of in in a lot of Latin America of the last ten years um, has been the story of of a kind of. A, a turn away from the optimism of that period with um, economic stagnation, um, political instability, um, in some countries sort of a turn to the right. The epitome of that is, of course, Brazil and Bolsonaro and a growth of um, protest movements, including, and, and often this is the case, among those groups that entered the middle class in the boom era of the, of the 2000s and are now disappointed at stagnant or falling living standards. And in, in Chile, the protests that we saw both, both in 2011, which were the protests from which um, Boric, the left-wing candidate, became famous, and uh, in 2019, were both expressions of that. So I think if you want to generalize it, this is more symptomatic of of conditions across Latin America. And of course, which of those two sides of the great contest over Chile's future wins will have, the, you know, the, the, there will be ramifications beyond Chile as well. I mean, um, Cast in particular looks to Bolsonaro as something of a uh, a model. And just like Bolsonaro, he has a, a fairly um, detached relationship with the institutions of liberal democracy, probably to, 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 to put it mildly. And so I, I, I think it will be very significant. Um, just to just to wrap up, we've obviously got this runoff between two candidates who I think you can sort of objectively say are uh, quite far out in their respective wings of politics, both quite far on the right and quite far on the left. And I suppose for many voters in the middle, that probably leaves them feeling quite despondent and like they. You know, don't necessarily want to vote for one or, or the other. Um, what what effect do you think that sort of polarization is going to have on on the outcome of the of the vote? Do you think are a lot of people going to just stay home because obviously two round systems are intended to create moderation and to um, to mean that you know everyone gets gets their chance to vote for a quote unquote mainstream politician? And I'm, I, I don't mean to equate both of these candidates, but it does seem like they are quite far out in their respective wings and I, I i suppose that could alienate some voters in the middle yes and one sees this even in the, the polling so the late the latest poll i've seen puts um uh, boric uh, so the, the left-wing candidate um slightly ahead at 39 percent to 36 percent but observant listeners will notice that doesn't add up to 100 percent because a lot of voters are saying either they don't know or that they intend to spoil their ballots so there is a despondency in the middle of chilean politics and i think you're right to to, to to, to draw attention to the, the dangers of that polarization. But what I would say is that I think in some of the coverage, um, there's been a tendency, because they're both from the kind of you know, hardline ends of their parts of the political spectrum, um, there has been a, a tendency to write them up as equivalents or, or, or to, to ascribe an equidistance between each of them and, and, the, and the political centre. And I do think that misreads it. I think that caste, you know, even, even from the point of view of someone absolutely banging the political centre, I think caste poses poses a much greater danger to Chile than Boric does. Boric, yes, he flirts with the sort of, you know, kind of a revolutionary tone and style and calls people comrade and so forth. But his his program essentially involves 
fairly mainstream social democracy. He would lift Chile's sort of tax take closer to the standard for something like a European country. He wants to reduce the work week from 44 hours to 40 hours. But, you know, he, he's pledging fiscal responsibility. You know, he wants a stronger social safety net, wants to see more public provision of public services. He's not really much of a radical when it comes to policy. And, you know, you might, you know, if you're a free marketeer, you like you like a small state, that's a legitimate position to have. You can criticise that, but you can't characterise it really as a threat to Chile's democratic order. Whereas Cast is openly nostalgic for the Pinochet era. You know, he's, he's openly dismissed uh, Chile's parliamentary um, institutions. He has... Um, dismissed the Constitutional Assembly. He has expressed admiration for, for for Bolsonaro in Brazil, who is trashing Brazilian democracy. And so I do. I would warn against this idea that well, because they're both hardliners, they're both just as dangerous to Chile's democratic settlement. I think I think we should say absolutely clearly that caste is the greater danger. And and you know you've had m- more sort of moderate centre left figures back um, Boric, uh, for example. So for example, Michel Bachelet, who's the the UN's human rights chief and former Social Democrat president of Chile has, has said he's definitely he is the better of the two. So I think I think we should be clear eyed about that. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to the new Statesman on digital, in print, or both, for as little as one pound a week at newstatesman.com slash subscribe. That's just two dollars a week in America. 
All right. Not our best, but not our worst. Um, our question this week comes to us via Twitter. It is from Tyson Barker, and it is, what is the more important get for the German Greens in their effort to shape foreign policy, the foreign ministry or the economic ministry, and why? Um, Jeremy, as our Germany elects host, we will we will turn to you. Okay, I'll get some thoughts on this, but then I'd, I'd be intrigued to hear also what you think, Emily, what, what the sort of the view from the outside is um, on this and on, on the new German government. Um, so I, I, it's a really good question because um, obviously there was a lot of debate during the coalition talks about which ministries were most valuable and the Greens went hard for these two ministries, foreign and, and economics. I think of the two, I would agree with the counterintuitive analysis that Tyson is possibly setting up in this question, which is that the economics ministry is the bigger get in terms of foreign policy. Um, German economic policy has long driven its foreign policies, particularly under the Merkel era. The economics ministry is a powerful one. um, And German power is very much a product of its economic and technological standing, certainly as much as it is its hard power. And the economics ministry manages things like, it oversees things like the arms industry, um, it oversees arms exports, it oversees trade policy, which has obviously been fundamental to, to Germany's ambivalent position on China over the years. Um, it oversees things like takeovers, which have become very political in recent years, particularly with um, Chinese firms sniffing around German um, high-tech companies. Uh, and so I think that is all very significant. And not to mention the fact that just the, the, the shape of the German economy and and you know where it exports to and what sectors provide most employment has absolutely driven foreign policy more, you know, in a more in a more general sense. So I think I think it is a more significant. But it's also I say that also because as has often been observed, the foreign ministry is not what it was in, in Berlin. It was a major powerhouse of foreign policy under um, Joschka Fischer, the last time the Greens were in power, um, between 98 and 2005. Um, but under Merkel, foreign policy really moved into the chancellery. So it is, you know, some have sort of probably slightly exaggerated by saying that it just, you know, it became the ministry that ran consular services and the embassies and, and the sort of the logistics of visits by foreign dignitaries. That's a bit unfair, but um, there's a sort of kernel of truth in it. But the interesting thing is that I think Baerbock, um, as foreign minister, wants to re- bring it, you know, bring some of its old stature back. Um, and she's she's had quite a confident first few days in the job. She's been shuttling around Europe to various visits um, and been quite keen to signal that there's a, there's a change of um, stance on subjects like democratic backsliding within the European Union, um, on Russia, on China, as uh, she's sounded more gutsy on the transatlantic relationship, perhaps than the Merkel era predecessors. So I think probably the economics ministry, but let's wait and see if Baerbock can remake the foreign ministry. I would just add that if you're Washington, well, if you're if you're Biden's Washington, certainly this is the best possible outcome for the foreign ministry that you were possibly going to get, right? That, that, that you could potentially have gotten from these elections. The, the person who ended up in that role is the person who is most outspoken in favor of transatlanticism and human rights and NATO even. So I, I will be very interested to, to see how the Blinken State Department and Baerbock foreign ministry get on. I'd also look at what Schultz does because this was all under Merkel shaped by the fact that she was so dominant, mm-hmm. but partly because her foreign policy was so often about handling crises and crisis management is done from the chancellery. She was so um, central to it all. But I think First of all, whether he allows Baerbock to take more control of things, but secondly, whether he aligns himself with with her positions on foreign policy will, will be key. And he gave his first um, sort of formal statement to the Bundestag today, as we record this, um, and actually was quite striking in echoing some of her language about a change of 
direction or a change of tone, at least on China. Now, that's that's just words. And as always with Schultz, it was all a bit sort of merkelishly <laughs> vague and and broad. But there was a sort of a hint at, at, at a change of direction there. So it'd be interesting to see if that continues. Thanks to all of you who sent in your questions. You can send yours in at podcasts at newstatesman.co.uk or by tweeting at us. That's all the time we have for today. You can read our international team's reporting at newstatesman.com slash international and join us on Monday for an interview with Mukulika Banerjee, an associate professor at the London School of Economics and author of a new book on Indian democracy and rural politics. If you've enjoyed this episode of World Review, please like, subscribe, rate us, leave a review and tell your friends. Our producer has been Mae Robson. Thank you for listening and until next time. 